1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Scholarly Communication, the podcast about how knowledge gets known. I'm Daniel Shea, your host for today's interview with Julia Molinari, lecturer in professional academic communication at the Open University UK and independent researcher. Her book, What Makes Writing Academic, Rethinking Theory for Practice, was published by Bloomsbury Academic this year. What Makes Writing Academic? That's the title of the book. And to be honest, I don't know how to say it, which intonation to give it. What Makes Writing Academic? What Makes Writing Academic? And that's the wonderful thing about the title. It takes the ambiguity of the WH clause, interrogative or nominal, and puts that ambiguity to work. The title is saying both at once, that is, the title is asking us to think about the academic writing and what it is, while the title is also giving one possible answer to its own question. Great. Really great. Because I can't imagine a more succinct way of signaling that a person's contribution to knowledge is their turn at a conversation about such knowledge. Because in the big picture of things, this is precisely what Julia Molinari's book, What Makes Writing Academic, is namely about. A continuation of all that's been said about academic writing, especially in the context of educating students to become academic writers, but also a break, a shift, an interruption in order to get the interlocutors of this conversation talking about something else that's, though still, related to everything that's been said so far. That something else which Julia brings to the conversation is in my understanding of her thesis, this simple fact. That the unthinking acceptance of any convention at all will neutralize a person's agency and demote any next act of theirs to the category of ineffectual. Ineffectual for the discourse they are nominally contributing to, and ineffectual most certainly for their own personal ends of achieving fulfillment or satisfaction through their own labor. Okay, That's not simple. But perhaps if I switch registers and just say, write your research how you want to, because that is the way your research needs to be written, perhaps putting it that way will bring out the simplicity of the point here. Of course, when I put it like that, it will sound like I'm endorsing an anything-goes attitude toward academic writing. Well, I'll risk that. Because just for a moment here, imagine with me. What would be so bad if anything went? in academia. Sure, things would get lost. For example, all round comprehensibility. For example, ease of use, as in experienced researchers knowing how to handle a piece of writing to their own purposes. On the other hand, things would be gained. Things are always gained after change. Just what those might be in the context of academia, just what might happen if academic writing became more what the writer wanted it to be, Perhaps things like accurate, contentious, diverse, artistic. Whether these were the gains, or these and others, or just others, that really is one of the topic of today's interview. And it is also one major area covered by Julia's book, What Makes Writing Academic. One other major area which I want to draw attention to here at the close of my intro is the student. Because it is through and by him or her or her hymn, that the future of academic writing is always being rewritten. In short, education is the seedbed of the conventions of academic writing, while academic writing as a thing and as an act is the real-world garden that people learn their subjects through, that people advance their subjects through, that the people themselves become the subjects of their subjects through. It is for this, for the students, and for learning— and for research, that the epigraph from Michael Rose at the start of chapter three so brilliantly captures Julia's whole message on what to do about education and academic writing. I quote, What is academic writing? What is an academic community? Wide-ranging change will occur only if the academy redefines what writing is for itself, changes the terms of the argument, and sees instruction in writing as one of its central concerns. So, let's begin today's conversation. Julia Molinari, what makes writing academic. Julia, welcome to Scholarly Communication.
0: Hello, Daniel. Thank you very, very much. That was um, a very... very scholarly introduction. One of the things I love about your interviews is that you don't just summarise the book, you actually engage with it, which makes your whole podcast series an absolute delight to, to listen to. So thank you very much for inviting me and um, for having read my book with um, such obvious detail.
1: Well that's that's very flattering thank you. <laughs> um, and, and a wonderful kickoff to uh, to our talk here. Um the 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 line that really caught my attention in Michael Rose's um epigraph there for for your chapter was that instruction in writing be one of the central concerns of a university education. And you know it's 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 probably a bit of my own personal background to say that that's what I had actually always let's say, intuitively for a very long time had thought. Um, I know as a, even as a high school student, the, um, the teachers that I had who got my interest in in English lit and, and writing sort of awoke that interest had always said that, you know, if, if you can write well, even if that well means according to your own needs and your own standards, then you know, you're doing well, you, you, you've, you've got what it takes, whatever you have to do. <laughs> You know, writing in itself is a virtue and I, I always carried that along with me and, and and to see it there in this research and to see how how central it could be and should be um, for me was was uh, yeah, exciting
0: well yeah good'm I'm, I'm, I'm very pleased I'm very pleased that you you share that um, that kind of approach to, to to writing I mean I suppose what underlies what you've just said is a conceptualization of writing and an understanding of what writing does in relation to knowledge that is maybe different from thinking about writing as just the mere transcription of you know of a thought it's not just reporting uh your thinking but you're actually kind of thinking thinking as you're writing and your 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 thoughts are being shaped as you're also writing and i think what i've what i've come um, to the conclusion about when it comes to academic writing is that it is it is actually a method of inquiry it's not just uh, a mechanical skill that you pick up and you just apply to anything that you that you want to say um, so I think the centrality of writing and you know the reason it's linked to academia which is you know the the context that I'm um, working within um, in relation to writing I think I think the reason it's so important is because it is actually the research. It, it, it's a method of inquiry in itself. Um, and it's it's how we communicate knowledge and how we start to engage and have conversations around knowledge. So it, it that's why it's so important. That's why it's so central. Um, you know, and that's why it, it it's so... Uh, it, it's kind of nerve-wracking because many in in many cases students feel that you know they're not good at it you you use the expression you know writing well is so important um it's, it's high stakes it's really high stakes and it can it can create a lot of anxiety because if people feel they don't write well then they feel they can't do academia um and so yeah it's it's absolutely central um i would i mean i i've argued in sort of different ways and and sort of triggered by different motivations that um yeah it's I I don't I I tend to have not focused so much on what good writing is I've tried to avoid that part of it so I've tried to avoid engaging with the idea that there are people that write well and people who don't write well I've sort of avoided that Um, lots of people have written about that um, so I'd rather defer to, to to those people if if you know people want to know what it means to write well I think my scholarship is more focused on what writing does and I'm very keen that we all enjoy the writing i'd like to bring more pleasure and more more joy in the whole process of writing because it is so central to um to methodological research so yeah i'm, I'm trying to shift the emphasis away if you see what i mean from what it means to write well um, to what it means to enjoy the writing and finding your scholarly voice in the writing
1: I totally see what you mean there. And that's also something that it took me some time to come around to and to uh, to understand uh, precisely in those terms that you're talking about there. I mean, I might just give it a new expression, but I mean, when you talk about the idea that what it means to write well is less interesting than the question, uh, what is it that the writing does? Um, sure, I'm totally on board with that. and I'm also on board, though, with this reformulation of uh, the writing doing something. And when it does it well, is the writer using the writing? So in a sense, writing well for me translates. And I know that there has been a time where I thought writing well was writing fancy. (laughs) Uh, It's not that way anymore, Um, uh, especially after my contact with the sciences, a point that I want to get to in in, in just a second. But um, that idea of writing well has, has very much come to me to, and this is a a theme that runs throughout your book of agency. So when you stand across from a writing as you stand across from a a really long variegated shelf at a supermarket, then I find that you're taking up one of the better positions you can and defining well, and one of the better ways that you leave the store, that you write the book with in your bag, what you wanted to take. But in any case, I did s- s- promise the sciences, <laughs> and uh, I, I was put in mind of the sciences uh, precisely by uh, your term. It's a methodology of inquiry. It's a method of inquiry. The, the writing itself, and that is. Uh, I, I work closely with uh, people in the biosciences, and one so they, they can they can put pretty direct questions. To a person, and, <laughs> um, and they mean well, and, and and usually the result is very good, and uh, they'll they'll ask things like, "So, what does it matter, you know, that uh, the the students write their protocols better?" Or, "What do you mean by better?" And so on. And I I found this actually really helpful, despite the fact that it makes sweat sort of run down your spine when you first hear the question, <laughs> um, because I was I've been able to realize, just as you've been saying, that yeah, well, because the science doesn't happen unless the person can make the science communicable. Understood, yeah? If they can express it primarily for themselves to begin with, and then, of course, translate that into a form that will be acceptable either in their classes or beyond their classes in their research community and beyond their research community and other research communities. In other words, I mean, just as, as you say, the, the research is in the writing itself.
0: It, it def, definitely the research is in the writing but i think in, in practice what that looks like for scientific writing i think is is um is a whole range of a whole range of things so first of all i'm you know my focus is not on any specific disciplinary writing so i need to kind of declare that from the outset my background is in the humanities and in the social sciences but obviously as a teacher of academic writing i've taught scientific writing so i have experience of um of that kind of practical side of things and and obviously helping students to to get through whatever genre they have to get through you know sometimes they have to write an upgrade report for their for their thesis sometimes they have to write a uh, an essay sometimes they have to write a blog post so my mind is my whole my whole kind of practitioner Uh, identity is very focused on you know what the students need to do at any given time and they will always have to follow some kind of specification, some kind of template some kind of guideline from their department from their supervisor etc so i work very much with students to achieve you know their aims their immediate aims in in that respect um Uh, but what what I suppose what I try to do in parallel is to create that sense also of enjoyment and possibility so one of the things that comes out in my book is the idea that things can always be other than they are that academic writing is always contested and it's always emergent in other words you know it can be other than it is and you can still work within the guidelines and the frameworks and the rules and the conventions but at the same time you know have some agency have some choice and have some sense of the possibilities that are available to communicate the science in the best way possible and that's ultimately the 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 aim you're trying to communicate to your reader, whoever your reader is at any given moment, um, or whoever an imagined reader might be, because with a book you just have no idea who is going to read you. But with you know an undergraduate essay, you know it's going to be your 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 tutors and your teachers. Um, so I don't I don't want to step on the toes of those who are much more expert in scientific writing. And you've interviewed some of those people, and I found your interviews absolutely wonderful they are gold mines of 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 information i'm thinking for example when you interviewed stephen hurd and the scientist guide to writing i mean he's he actually talks about beauty in the in the in the in scientific writing he talks about humor um in scientific writing the kind of whimsical that exists because ultimately you want your research you want your knowledge to um you know, to, to to hit a to hit to hit the right note with, with your readers. Um, so it's I, I suppose what what I'm trying to say in response to, to the way that you've uh, that, that you've put it, um, you know, that you've you've picked up on the idea that I talk about writing as a method of inquiry. I suppose what that means for me is that you're writing to represent knowledge and you're choosing writing as a method to represent that knowledge. You could be using an image, you could be using an a, a oral podcast like this, you could be doing an interview, um, you could be uh, using an animation uh, you could be using metaphor. You know, metaphor is absolutely the kind of uh, the, the the heart and soul of scientific writing. I mean, the most difficult concepts in, in in science are communicated through metaphor. Think of black holes, for example. I mean, they're not literally black holes as we would understand them. They're a metaphor to help us understand something that is highly complex. And language doesn't always... Achieve that, and that's one of the things I talk about in in the book. Is that language is fallible, language has limits on its own ability to represent um, the 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 world as the as the writer sees it. So it's never it's never a complete method of inquiry. It's one of many methods of inquiry, um, and therefore, and and therein lies the fact that there are possibilities within writing um, that are not always. Um, I don't think are always taught because we, you know, there is a tendency for all kinds of reasons to t- to teach certain standards, to foreground certain rules, to foreground the do's and the don'ts, um, and you know there are there are sort of practical pedagogic reasons for those, but. I, I'm just concerned as, a, as both a, a, a theorist of writing and a, a, a practitioner of writing that those rules and those conventions can become so internalized that they become fossilized. Um, there's another metaphor. Um, they become fossilized, they become entrenched to such an extent that they become limiting, and that's where. I think the, the joy of writing is killed because you're sort of thinking, oh, I need to use a passive in my writing. Um, I know because that's what makes writing academic is the use of the passive. Um, and actually, the passive may not be the right the right method, um, the right linguistic method for communicating the knowledge that needs to be communicated. So I don't know, in, in everything I've just said, Daniel, I don't, know, I don't know
1: what to do Well, actually, there's so, much, so many things to pick up. I'm, I'm going to, uh, at the danger of perhaps spending too much time on science writing, something that very much interests me, but um, so much of what you say applies to, as you say, all academic writing. I, I found myself thinking in at least three different general directions as I read your book, um, the social sciences, humanities, and very much uh, for me personally in any way in the direction of the sciences, and it, w- it was fascinated again and again how um, – the, the the slight adjustments that would be made to many of your statements and how they would apply so interestingly to all those three directions, um, to take up an example, um, just, just right now, uh, this idea of the possibility and the enjoyment in writing, I, I use the word, and it's really the same thing, um, it's just a different way of putting it, enthusiasm. And... Um, that is one of the reasons why, and this is actually what I wanted to kick the interview off with, and we'll come to it, I'm sure, uh, to, to, to talk about this idea of education in, in academic writing. But before we, or just a small diversion in that direction, this is this is why I've thought that awareness raising is one of those things that needs to be at the center of of what it is that you're doing when you're teaching um, academic writing. But just just to get back to this point of the different modalities that are open as well. The limits of language, as, as you put it. Um, this is interesting in the context of science because scientists know that. In fact, scientists typically are facing their language as a limited prop. Um, I've heard so many biologists tell me, I actually write the article in my head by looking through the figures. And that in itself is showing that, you know, Already, <laughs> the form of communication, the form of the research itself is what they've found. Yeah? Um, I had on um, uh, Jari uh, Saramaki, um, who also wrote uh, a writing guide for scientists, and, and he said, that is the chief difficulty for the scientist, and it is translating the world into language. Yeah, Actually, they'd be happier over there in the world and, and, and then one thing that I'm, I'm I'm driving at here is that uh, two experts on multimodality who have who have had on the program um, uh, Bill Cope and, and, and Mary Colanzies, uh they they draw attention to the idea that uh, Dewey had of participation when it comes to communicating things and they break it down into the representative function the communicative function and the interpretive function and and and, and Put in the simplest of terms, the, the representative function, and this this just popped in my mind as you were talking about, yeah, you represent knowledge. The representative function happens on the individual basis. It's really you're getting to grips with the subject knowledge. The communication happens in what we would traditionally understand as, you know, writing it for publication or for an assignment. And then the interpretive end comes in on the reader side of things. It's it's a wonderful breakdown. And the fact that the whole process is called participation just thrills me. <laughs> I find that that really uh, describes it well and and that brings us back to this idea that you use academic writing. This is one of the things that I spend very much time on with my students that you are not writing initially to communicate. You know, you need to accept that this is a method as, as you've said, this is a tool for you initially to get in touch with the content because th- the way you can understand it is very often through your language. There are other methods as well. I mean, the way you can read a figure matters in certain sciences, but you've got to be able to tell yourself what it is that you understand. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I'll have to go and listen to that podcast by the the two authors on multimodality that you mentioned i've not not got around to list this so they're just they're, yeah they're, they're so <laughs> there are so many i need to um i i tend to listen to them in the car actually when i'm when i'm commuting so um i i will get through them on my next car journey um no it's so yeah so the way that i would um i would re recast or um or couch what you've just said about the communicative the representative and the interpretative aspect of writing as as a form of participation is in my language in my understanding it's about it's kind of about the difference between process and product so you've got the process of you can approach writing as a process and that process can mean all kinds of different things it can mean the process of you actually coming to terms with the knowledge and understanding it and making sense of it um, for yourself initially Um, and then there's the 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 kind of the the product which is what goes public yeah what gets what gets published what gets written down and and given to a reader so it's a kind of there's a there's a kind of binary of the private and and the public going on there um how you represent it to yourself uh how you interpret it and then how you communicate it um so i guess that's how it would map on to um sort of you know commonly used concepts of process and and product and i suppose what what's at stake here as well is that when you go public with your writing whether it's you know the final essay that you click send on uh, for the deadline or whether it's the book um, the, the final thesis that you send off to the examiners. when you actually go public with that, um, it's the tip of the iceberg, really, what the reader sees, because what's been going on underneath is all kinds of revisions, all kinds of uh, what you know what's referred to as the the, the crappy first draft. Um, but there are there are several of those crappy first drafts, because each time you're trying to work out what it is you want to say, what the best lack what the best choices are for what you want to say you're having to constantly even you know you mentioned scientists looking at the the diagram and then just you know they'd be much happier communicating via diagrams via formulae via mathematics um uh, yeah i mean m- you know my partner's a mathematician and i know i know that a lot of a lot of things you know they mathematicians feel doesn't need to be said in any other way it's just beautifully said as it is as that formula um but we have different audiences that we communicate with and that is where the choices and the possibilities come in because that's where we've got scope to play around with the most fitting way of saying something not the conventional way not the default rule that tells you that this is academic and this is not academic um but you know who is our who is going to read us and what do we what do we need to do as writers as as communicators of academic knowledge what do we need to do to help that reader understand things the way that we are seeing them the way that we are understanding them so so as writers and as communicators of our knowledge we're always always grappling with that what's the best way to do it and I suppose that's what my my book is about it's about um sorry I just lost the connection there it's about it's about highlighting that there are different ways to represent academic knowledge and I think that a good writing pedagogy um, should empower writers to explore those possibilities um, and you know having come from a background where I you know I've taught EAP for, for many years I've found that it, for all kinds of reasons um, writing pedagogy, you know can be quite can can be quite narrow it, it, it presents it presents um student writers with a limited set of choices and and you know there are good reasons for that because there are assignments to be done and there are you know journals have their rules and they have their specifications um but like i said i think it kills the joy of the process um but i don't i also don't think it's actually um let me think how how best to put this i actually don't think that teaching that exclusively teaching the rules and the conventions is is doing is is in the best interests of academic writers and and the reason i say that is because there are different ways There, you know there are different journals there are different um editors there are different publishers there are a range of ways that you know you can communicate your 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 knowledge um but there's another fundamental thing going on here as well and I haven't really touched upon it much in my research and I think it's something I'm, I'm going to have to pick up in, in my future research projects and that's the fact that um not all um Academic writers are going to uh, to remain in academia, and I'm thinking here specifically about, um, you know, PhD researchers. And there's a lot of evidence now that you know there, that there aren't academic jobs to to go into like there might have been in the past with widening participation. There are there are you know there are more people coming out with PhDs now than you know say 20 30 50 years ago but there aren't the academic jobs for them to go into they 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 you know many of them will not become um professional academics um you know whereby academic writing is is the tool of their trade um so being able to work with um graduates um you know postgraduate researchers like like I do now in my, my 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 role at the open university is with the graduate school um so i'm working very much with um postgraduate researchers who may or may not go into academia and who l- need to learn different ways of communicating their knowledge and i suppose that's also where i think my my research is you know becomes relevant um is is kind of exploring you know what are the possibilities for different stakeholders for different you know working in industry working in in um, you know other, other contexts that are not the academic context like how do you communicate your knowledge for those other contexts um, so um, so yeah that goes you know when you were saying it's about communication representation interpretation and I'm sort of trying to say well yeah that can be narrowed down to the simple binary of process and product um, and who who you want to be read by that informs your your choices in that that respect.
1: Yeah, this communicating for other contexts is is really key, and it starts at the smallest of levels, because just to come back to the point I was making about scientists, you know, the dream of a scientist is to communicate through figures, um, for example, or a biological scientist anyway. Um, This doesn't really reflect the reality of communication. And any experienced scientist will tell you that it's not going to work because the reality of communication is the question or the issue of shared knowledge and the question or the issue of shared thinking. And those two are not always the same thing. It could well be that your research, your study has covered a small bit of knowledge that some of your audience just don't have yet. They need to be told the numbers or the species or whatever. but there i haven't met a scientist yet who says the results speak for themselves sort of the old adage and <laughs> and that and that, and that brings in the entire area of okay well how are you thinking about this um it just so happens that you know nature is out there very silently looking back at us and we're doing our best to figure out what she means and <laughs> it's 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 always a figuring out that's that's part of my point uh, I, the the other larger issue though that brings us beyond this narrow Let's say even communication inside of or between subfields is just as you were saying the 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 larger context. Where do you end up, uh, you know, through your education time? I mean, fields themselves are becoming more interdisciplinary. Perhaps on your PhD committee, we'll be sitting people from you know a various set of of backgrounds, and and then of course very much after, uh, you know, when you enter. The quote-unquote real world. Uh, I'm looking here at a book uh, that I interviewed a few weeks back, "Science of Science" uh, by Wang and uh, Barabashi, and and they have a figure talking about entitled "The Academic Pipeline," and we've got faculty positions leveling out somewhere around five uh, k. They're showing us between 1980 and 2010, and PhDs awarding going from 20 k up to 40 k in the same period. So just to give a little bit of numbers to your point, which is well-made, yeah. Uh, you're not going to end, or you, know, you shouldn't assume you're going to end up in a university. You don't know who you're going to have to communicate to.
0: Yeah, <clears throat> absolutely. And
1: and, and and one other last thought there, perhaps before we move on to education, finally. <laughs> Anyone listening to this interview is going to want to wring my neck because <laughs> I've been promising it for about half an hour. Um, but y- your your idea on Process and 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 product, um, I find also really important because um, there there's there's a further meta level to it though the way I see it and it's also something I try to communicate to my to my students. Yes, in this particular task, this assignment, this PhD, you're going to have a long process which shows up as a small product and your ice tip of the iceberg type thing that you were saying. Verlyn um, Klinkenborg, who's who's written a fantastic guide on writing in general, um, says that it's all change down to the last minute, and anyone who's you know schooled in writing can even notice the change in the final product. But the meta level that I'm referring to is to take the words process and and product. If we start at the product and and this is a word and a metaphor you develop in the book, the, the conversation of an academic community. If you take the product and suddenly it becomes products. Very many students have focused on the idea that, you know, I need to say everything in this one piece and I need, I need to get it somehow finalized. And to understand that this one piece is one and it will turn into 10 and it will turn into 20 is already a help in what does my writing need to do how do i use it right and then at the meta level of the process that you have in the one book or the one article that becomes a for me processing at that level on the conversation inside of a discipline outside on the air on the on the borders of a discipline it becomes the entire processing that's going on of knowledge and thinking so you you realize that each of your single acts are you know, to, to come back to the word "participating," so f- I, I suppose what I do try to communicate with that is the idea that you know it takes some of the pressure off. This is how we're all doing it.
0: So, are you saying? Are you saying that basically not everything can go into a piece of writing? Is that is that part of what you're saying? That would
1: be the boiled boiled down for sure. One <laughs> of um, <laughs> the
0: pressure we have on ourselves as writers is that we you know we think it's we yeah that that moment you click send um to send it to whoever the editor the supervisor um the writing tutor is is kind of it's it it fills you with anxiety because you you kind of feel there's so much more you could have said and you've had to cut and you've had to revise and you've had to edit um for it to be communicated is, is that Am I understanding you yeah,
1: yeah, that's that that's certainly part of it. I suppose i i've I've done this in very abstract terms, um, and I was focusing on my few notes here with the words process product, processing product. So <laughs> if you were sitting at my desk, it would probably be a little clearer. <laughs> um, but no, indeed, that's part of it. I suppose the other thing is is that at some point along the line, I realized for myself and realized also that I needed to pass on this that um, if you look at the sort of you know, at a high school type level and initial college type level that a student is facing when he or she is getting instructed in writing, there's a lot, unfortunately, of literary genres involved there. And what I think gets passed on, I know it got passed on to me, is this idea of doing a fantastic job with what you've written and of really hitting the nail on the head And if you understand the literary tradition as, you know, something that you participate in by making a piece of writing unique, then, of course, you're you're damning yourself for the research community because you're not necessarily trying to make it unique. I mean, you're speaking definitely, as you make the point throughout the book, in your own voice, but you're doing it in a way that you want um, to get everyone moving somewhere. And that's not the same thinking that's involved in literary writing. The same thinking involved in literary writing is really, as I was just saying, that it, this work could only ever be so, you know. And that's not the case when it comes to research writing.
0: Okay, so there's lots, lots, there's lots to unpack in in what you've just said. So, what one thing that's just come to mind when you've been talking there is almost as if. Um, it goes back to your you know when you were talking about writing well at the beginning of this interview when we said I said I don't want to go down the route of what is good writing and what is not good writing what does it mean to write well and not write well I think if you come from a literary tradition um, it's it, it you know the the pressure is on uh, to not only do literary criticism but to also um, you know to also be somebody that 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 writes that writes well and um, I have on my Twitter handle that I've had since 2017, I've got a, a quote by um, Jean Cocteau, who was a French a French playwright. And he he wrote, you know, academic essays. He directed films. He was, you know, very, very multimodal in his literary communication. Um, but he says something which I think kind of captures what you're saying. And I do say it in the book. I talk about this in the book when I talk about the aesthetics of, of writing, um, and he, he, I'll say it in French because I think it's completely lost in translation, and then I'll say what it, what it, what it means uh, when it's translated. So Jean Cocteau says, "Écrire est un acte d'amour. S'il si ne l'est pas, il n'est qu'écriture." And in French, there's a distinction between écrire and écriture, which in English is translated as just writing. And in, Eng- in the English language, the grammar of the English language allows that word "writing" to be both a noun and uh, a process and a verb, um, but it doesn't capture the difference between "écrire" and "écriture." And I think, when you were talking just now, and you were talking about your literary background and, and you know the idea of um, uh, you know of, of processing um, and, and product. Um, écriture refers to the product it's like it's that final piece that basically gets communicated and it has a function it it is to report the results it's to just report information and it doesn't really matter if it's written beautifully or not whereas écrire is more the kind of the art of writing the craft of writing the 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 very careful um sort of choices that we make about the the best way to get the message across, you know, you can get a message across, it doesn't have to be beautifully written, you can still get the message across. So, you know, there's a sense in which what's essential is to get the message across. That's ultimately the essential thing in in, in academic communication, because you have to communicate results, you have to communicate research. Um, But the way you do that takes you into another way of thinking about your your writing and, and I think Stephen Heard um, uh, does this uh, brilliantly in his book because he talks about there, there are these kind of com- competing de- competing demands on the reader's attention we, we in in the academy at the moment we write more than we can read there's, there's more out there there are so many publications out there and who's reading them I mean we're all publishing you know at the rate of The speed of light basically um it's it's connected to people's promotion it's connected to people's careers academics have to publish basically whether what they're 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 saying is is any good or 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 if they've communicated it nicely or not it doesn't matter as long as it gets into some kind of journal um so there's a race to to produce um there's a race to have what i would call or what jean cocteau would call um écriture these products um, but nobody's actually reading them um, you know or very few people are, are, are reading them and they're not having the, the the societal impact and they're not reaching the people they need to reach to, to make social transformations necessarily um, so that's that's what I'm thinking when you said all of that that's what I was um, that's what I was thinking um, and I don't know if that if, if that's still capturing what you were what you were sort of you know um, Nodding to or, or hinting at, but that's kind of how I how I heard what you were saying and what it what it made me think. Um, and just
1: yeah, no, that's that is definitely a part of it. And um, I suppose uh, to, to be as clear as I possibly can, I, I suppose what it is is that I notice in uh, students, and I noticed this also in myself when I was a student, even simply writing an essay, that you know you you thought you were attaining. At that moment, some sort of completion, and to just understand that, quite simply, the you know the conversation metaphor of uh, of scholarship, um, or the way that science communication is practiced today, you're you're having a, a brief turn at something. And I think that and this is going to finally bring us to the topic of education. I think that, I think that that is indeed what we do wrong in our education. I mean, you were very careful in your uh, formulation of you know what it is in EAP um, courses or wh- whatever else they're called anywhere else is, is is not done so optimally. I would say they're doing a terrible job of communicating that idea that um this is an entire arm, an entire foundation of your research, this continual talk. And this is part of the reason why it's also good that you expand in your book the the view beyond the text. The text is going to remain central for a very long time, but it doesn't mean that it has to be the only thing. And to even look just at the text and to realize okay now what I need to do with this one text and in this one part of it is tell them this if, if that was what was going on in people's minds which it is in experienced uh, researcher's minds I would argue then I think students are going to be far better placed than to look at how do I completely incorporate all the knowledge that I'm supposed to have there so I suppose yeah. that's my, my stab at putting yeah, it a little no, bit
0: more. yeah i did and i went a bit off topic but actually in response to that i remember when i was doing my my phd thesis um one of my supervisors um a- absolutely um addressed that but she she said to me basically um what you need to do is create little black boxes in your in your in your folder on your computer, basically. So everything that doesn't you're going to have to be really brutal with the thesis, this like stuff that is the will be the topic of a, a paper, it will be the topic of a book, it will be the topic of a film, it will be the topic of some artwork that you do, but it's not going into the thesis. And she, she talked about having these little black boxes and these little folders where basically, I would just, you know, rather than, throat because it's it's one of the hardest things to do as a, as a research writer is actually cut and chuck you, you just can't do it you know you you might have spent a month writing um you know two thousand words and you just realize actually this is part of a a, a different project. This is this this will go somewhere else. It's not going into the thesis or, or whatever. Um I think maybe that's kind of cl- closer to, to what you're trying to say is get, is getting that message across that, that whatever yeah. you yeah doesn't have to do everything.
1: Exactly. Yeah. I, I mean there is at least half of 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 that aspect of yeah a misunderstanding of what the writing is. So your term is it ecriture, is it écrit? Is it, is it you know, product or production. Uh, th- there's that. There's this general, I'll be blunt today, there's general laziness when it comes to writing down on the page is done. And there's also though, and this is for me the more key element, the idea that you really understand what it is that you're about. This brings us all the way back to, and, and I really want to bring this into the area of education, how do we get students thinking this way? Uh, this brings you to uh, this idea of the use so, in other words, writing well is, is using it to your purposes. And when you've understood that your purpose in, I don't know, medieval history is to um, expand somebody's theory on why it is that in the south of France X, Y, and Z happened instead of in the north of France, then it's not like you're doing a chronology. What you're doing is a persuasive step in one direction you're taking that turn at your conversation and you're actually waiting to see what people are going to say back so that you can take your next turn that that is is a totally different view as to what you're doing when you're writing
0: um yeah so okay we want to bring it back to education so how do we get students to to kind of see this but i suppose as as educators how do we How do we facilitate that? Um, One of the things that I'm very keen to um, to bring into conversations about academic writing is the the sociology and the philosophy of academic writing. Um, I mean, there's the the kind of maybe the, the heavier chapter in the book is chapter four, where I talk about critical realism. But, um, and not not all readers will be familiar with that philosophy and that sociology, but essentially it is an attempt on my part to address what you are picking up on there. In other words, how do we create the educational context and the educational conditions for, um, for writers to realise that they've got to think carefully about the choices they have to communicate that, that knowledge. Um, and what I've what I've tried to, to to highlight in the book through the philosophy of critical realism is that, that I mean there there are con- there are constrictions and conditions and conventions that we're all born into. We all have to follow certain rules and certain conventions. You know, we all go to school. We all we don't all have the same teachers. There are certain structures that we are born into and that we are constrained by. Yeah, we we have to we have to uh, do certain exams to get our degrees and so on and so forth. And there are rules and, and, and kind of criteria for that. And that's, you know, that's, um, that's just a fact of life. Uh, And I guess that's what critical realism allows me to articulate is that there are certain things that are just facts of life and there's only so much an individual can do to change those. But the other kind of two key areas that i identify in the book is that there are what i've called levers of change so there are things that can that can happen that we can do as as teachers as researchers um, to kind of trigger a change in the way that we might think about academic writing and its possibilities and the fact that it is contested, the fact that it is emergent, Um, and by emergent I mean it can change and it does change, I mean one of the chapters in my book is about the history of of academic communication and it clearly shows, and I think Stephen Heard does that, that's why I love his book because he's got a chapter on history as well, it shows that it it has been different and therefore it can continue to be different, it can evolve and it can emerge as, as new forms of writing. But the two levers of change that I identify in the book are the lever of um, scholarship. In other words, ensuring that teachers of academic writing have access to scholarship and can do the research that they need to do in order to sensitize themselves to the fact that there are different ways of conceiving writing. Um, uh, One, um, you know, for, for example, knowing that there are certain threshold concepts about academic writing i talk about threshold concepts in um, in the book um uh, the, the, there's a fantastic book um by uh, uh elizabeth wardle and uh kessner adler kessner i uh, um, might got i might have got the, ra- the name wrong there but it's called threshold concepts in academic writing so if anyone's interested to do that search threshold concepts in academic writing um and that you know having access to scholarship and i see scholarship very much as a lever of the kind of change that you know you're alluding to um in education it means means knowing what's been written about academic writing and knowing that there isn't just one standard form there isn't just one template that says this is academic this is not academic um so th- so through sort of enabling practitioners to do research to do the scholarship um, and that requires kind of an institutional commitment people need to have time built into their contracts they need to be you know literally paid to do the scholarship to understand what's at stake when it comes to academic writing so that's one way I think we can we can um, effectuate change in the way that we do things Um, the other way is through pedagogy so, you know, being, having the pedagogical imagination to experiment, to look at different ways of writing, to look at how writers, I've, I've, my chapter three is called uh, Writings in the Wild, right? So, um, you know, looking at, I, I can't remember the exact title of that chapter, but it's, uh, yeah, what makes what makes writing academic learning from writings in the in the wild? That's chapter three of the book, and in there, I showcase three three theses, uh, like um, uh, you know, doctoral theses in particular um, that have been written. Um, and I, you know, this is an interview, so you can't see me doing the, the scare quotes with my fingers, but they've been like you know written in 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 scare quotes. Um, uh, in very 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 different ways and they passed as doctoral theses one was by um, Nick Susanis who um is a scholar of um of co- uh, uh, he does a comic scholarship and he uh he's a mathematician by background by training um but he's also an educationalist um and he wrote his doctoral thesis as a as a comic it was basically a um a research on visual thinking, done through visual thinking. Um, and it's, it's written in, it's published by Princeton University Press. It's called Unflattening. Um, I also refer to the scholarship of A.D. Carson, who is a professor of hip hop. Um, and he uh, wrote, again, I use it in scare quotes, um, instead of chapters, he did little podcasts. Um, so you know I mean you know your your work in uh, on this platform Daniel, I think is is fantastic I mean it's, it's an example of scholarship in action it's communicating knowledge it's an absolutely essential way of communicating knowledge um, you know it should be recognized as scholarship it should be recognized as research um, because you're you're doing all the things that that make, communication academic you're you're bringing academics into conversations with each other you're reading their work you're engaging with it um so this ad carson does that but with his his, his phd um his phd uh, research so he does podcasts instead of written chapters um i've also got another example in there by um a, a mathematician um uh piper harron um, I can't remember what university she's at now, but she she got her PhD from Princeton University in mathematics, and she wrote her PhD for three different audiences. So when we were talking before, you know, you need to know who your audience is. Um, at, Piper Harron for me is an, ex- an absolutely like gold star example of somebody who is very in touch with her own agency you know she's a black woman she's a you know she's a woman doing a PhD in maths and you know already there there you know the, there's the whole issue of women and science and maths so she's kind of you know she's taking her own agency her own identity by the horns and she's, um, she's writing for three different audiences she writes for the lay person, she writes for the initiated person, and she writes for the panel of experts that are going to be her, you know, examining PhD panel. Um, And the reason she does that is because she wants her research to be read by specific people. She doesn't just want it to sit and gather dust on the shelves of Princeton University Library. She wants um, secondary school teachers to engage with her mathematical ideas. She wants, you know, people who've not studied maths beyond um, you know primary school to sort of understand where she's coming from in her research so for me these are this these are all examples in the book in chapter three of writings in the wild of of academic writers who have done that and to go back to your point about education and how can we how can we um you know encourage practitioners how it teachers of writing how can we encourage students to think about their writing as writings in the plural as écrire and écriture as process and product um uh, and and to sort of think about the most fitting way for them to communicate their 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 knowledge Um, and I think by having examples like that it doesn't mean that that's what you have to do they're not templates but they're examples of possibilities and I think from an educational perspective that's kind of the whole point of education is to, to, to sort of stimulate the imagination to think about the possibilities because these students are going to be somewhere that you are not as a teacher you know as a teacher you are now you're stuck in the 20, in 2022 but your students will be the future generation your students will be in a different world to the one that you have now and I think to go back to um to Dewey you mentioned Dewey and you mentioned someone you interviewed who'd used the the philosophy of education of, of John Dewey I talk about John Dewey in the book as well and I talk about the fact that you know we w- we don't inhabit the world that our students will be inhabiting and our job as educators I think is to create imagination in the classroom you know not just practical transferable skills for a world that we we don't even know about but we have to create the conditions for for students to be able to to cope and deal with a world that is still unknown that's, for me, the kind of purpose of education. And that purpose can be, that educative, educative purpose can be achieved um, through the teaching of writing.
1: Yeah, and uh, as, as you make so clear in the book and in what you just said, and you've also beautifully given us a, a, a look into uh, one of the whole chapters that was really quite fascinating because of the modalities that people brought to their PhDs, um, and what that says, also, as you say, about um, you know agency and academic writing and and what education means, but none of this is going to be possible as you very as you make very clearly clear if the teacher isn't also a scholar, right? Because there's no way for then us. I'll just say us right now. (laughs) It may only be us who are uh, listening to us. In other words, other EAP professionals who who want to know so much about this. But that's also fine. I I welcome you into our conversation there. But this idea that you can only sort of get glimpses of that future if you're constantly thinking about that future. I I went to a a workshop here in Heidelberg about English uh, medium instruction, and I was very disappointed for the fact that essentially they took up an exactly opposing view of the student and the student's education as to what you've just laid out for us. Um, And it really came down, speaking about multimodalities, down or through one of their slides. Because I forget exact connections here, but the slide was a a person, sort of a, a stick figure type person with a face though in the middle and about that person were all the different sort of approaches that needed to be taken so that the english medium education would come off uh, again i'm giving a very rough i don't remember the exact slide but the the thing that really got me was the person in the middle had almost a babyish type face and they had their fist in front of their face in a way that you could almost have thought i don't think this was the intention but almost have thought they were sucking their thumb and then i and then i it all sort of gelled for me i realized that's how they see whom they're educating. They need to feed it all to them. And that is just so much different if I might quote from from your book uh, early on in the um in the letter to my reader. It's also interesting uh, mode that you take there for the for the I'll call it an introduction. Yeah, i um,
0: playing around with genre. that was my intention.
1: And that was also uh, it came off. It definitely came off. Uh, you give a quote here of, of Barnett 1990. Um, I don't know any more about the book, but I'm just just so people realize where it's coming from. Uh, you say introducing it. My aim is to unsettle assumptions about academic writing because and here is Barnett's quotation. A genuine higher learning is subversive in the sense of subverting the student's taken-for-granted world, including the world of endeavor, scholarship, calculation, or creativity into which he or she has been initiated. A genuine higher education is unsettling. It is not meant to be a cozy experience. It is disturbing because ultimately the student comes to see that things could always be other than they are. And that is... That's the thing. That's exactly what the people at the workshop I attended weren't seeing, and it's and it's unfortunately a part of much of, oh, I don't know, offerings that you see at high speed, more neoliberal type institutions at universities nowadays, where you know it's a it's a sort of catering, you know, giving the students things that are you know fun, and and do speaking of Dewey, again talks about you know uh, what is engagement and what is just entertainment and uh, there's there's a there's a large divide between the two and unfortunately from way outside you know engagement and entertainment might look similar but they are not
0: yeah, no, I mean, that you've, yeah, you've hit the nail on the head then. That's um, Ron, Ron Barnett, for the sake of listeners who are who are listening, that's that's what you were quoting from. And I refer to Ron Barnett's work throughout the book um, on the, the, the future possibilities, imagining the future possibilities of what a higher education could be. Um, and Ron Barnett's work is very much focused on, you know, what is, what is, higher education about what is it that we're trying to do with higher education what you know what 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 is a higher education compared to uh you know secondary education or a primary school education um so it 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 is and and i mean and this this daniel feeds into um the kind of it feeds into discussions about ideology um i guess we're coming to the end of the interview now but that's another big discussion um about what ideologies underlie writing pedagogies um and you know what ideal what ideology of education underlies those those pedagogies um, and i i very much subscribe to the ideology that um, academic writing has emancipatory power um, it fulfills an educative uh, educative purpose and am i saying that right Edu Purpose. The educative purpose. Educative,
1: maybe? Ed- the adjective <laughs> education. Um, I'm American though, I don't
0: know. <laughs> <laughs> not just educational, not just educational as an adjective, but as a process, you know, an educative yeah, yeah, yeah. process. So academic writing fulfills that, that vision of education that I have. And it is an ideological vision. And I talk about ideology quite a lot in the book as well, because it is political. It is a political act. Um, and it is about how you, you know, how you see, how you see the, the purpose, um, the meaning of, of a higher education. Um, and for me, clearly, you know, in the book, it's about stimulating the imagination. It's about stimulating creativity. It's about, a, a, a reflexivity about your own agency but in relation to others so it's not agency understood as individualism uh, individualism as you said at the beginning of this interview so it's not about anything goes it's not about you know this is how I want to write and therefore I will write it that way no that it's not about that and that's that's where my critical <clears throat> critical realist um philosophy and sociology comes into play because I recognize very much that there are constraints you know we do live in society we do work with others there are expectations out there um but but you know but we also have agency and we work with others to fulfill our best possible selves i mean that's the way i i see higher education but clearly you know not everyone will agree with that um um but that's you know that's also fine
1: (laughs) well it's it seems that there's um uh a fair amount of people in our line of work who, who do. Ken Highland is one. Uh, you, you you cite him as talking about um, the transgressive potential and his term transgression in, in academic writing. And you quote another uh, scholar, McFarlane, talking about performativity, which would almost be the exact opposite of Highland's uh, transgression. And and at the risk of, of perhaps... of extending the interview another 10 minutes <laughs> uh, for, the, for, the, for the listeners' sake, for your sake. Um, I would like to just explore that because I find it a nice perhaps wrap-up uh, to, to our conversation because it, the performativity from McFarlane, I'll, I'll just briefly say what, what I understood there, is a sort of taking the surface features and carrying them over to the next project. So this might represent sort of the majority AAP course, unfortunately, right? And this is also... What, in my terms, when I talk to my students, what I call imitation. Yeah, I mean, to imitate somebody, you're really just entirely focusing your attention on them and you're figuring out how do I bring them over to me. Yeah. Whereas Highlands transgression sounds very much like what I mean when I say to them adapting or adaptation. So looking closely at what you're taking from, because you have to adapt from something, but functionalizing it tooling it towards your own your own ends and this topic came out very heavily for me in your book when you talked about the scientization of the humanities and parts of the social sciences as well in in the sense that they're starting to write as if they were biologists in a sense and what i find fantastic is that this, the biologists sometimes are also writing as if they were biologists. <laughs> what I mean by that, because that doesn't make sense on its own, is um, another book uh, I, I talked to, John Measy a few weeks ago. His book, uh, How to Write a PhD in Biological Sciences, fantastic book, can only recommend it to everyone. You don't even have to be in the biological sciences to, to appreciate this book in, in the sense of what you can learn from it in writing. Um, he talks about his former... Um, supervisor, his old advisor, as he calls him. Um, and this is a email that this advisor of, um, of John Measy sent in to uh, the Journal of Ecology, I think it was. And this is Brian Moss is the former advisor. And he's a professor. He's also a former editor. Um, he writes, and this just takes a second. So um, I'm going to read it because it says a lot. Dear sir. I've just attempted to read a paper in one of the society's journals about the transfer of nitrogen from lakes to land by the excretion and death of moose. The summary should have read, moose feed on plants in rivers and lakes and excrete and die on land, thus transferring significant amounts of nitrogen from the water to the land. The pattern of transfer is not random and depends on where moose feed and where wolves kill them. That's what it should have read. He goes on. Instead, I had to wade through nearly five times as many words, including such horrors as associated spatio temporal patterns of resource flow across aquatic terrestrial boundaries, cross habitat resource flux, significantly clustered at multiple scales, and faunal mediated resource transfer. In neither the title nor keywords do any of nitrogen, moose, or wolf appear. Do we not have some duty, he concludes his email, do we not have some duty to protect the English language and the sanity of the readership against this sort of thing? It is very common in the society's journals. Editors are there to edit. Why are they not editing anymore? Sincerely yours, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And that's what I meant by even the biologists are scientizing their language. Um here we have an experienced researcher who gave us a summary that both of us just understood. And we have brief snippets of what was originally written, which needed to be translated into English. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, that speaks to the whole, the whole kind of, Narrative thread uh, that you know that that we've been touching upon this last hour is that it, it's about who your readership is, and I think Stephen Heard says this beautifully in his um, historical introduction: is that once upon a time, um, you know, the alchemists of the the sixteenth century they were they were they were writing for themselves. You know, they were writing uh, either uh, you know for e- for each other, very very sort of specialized group. Um, they were also trying to obscure um, the clarity of their writing because, you know, there were kind of trade secrets that, you know, people didn't want to share. And, and, and Stephen had talks about Newton as well, as I do as, as well in, in, in the book. Um, you know, the, there are kind of reasons why you, you would want to write that way. Um, there's nothing, again, it goes back to writing well or not writing well, writing academically or not writing academically. There's no, There's nothing inherently good or academic about that. Um, it's, it's very much uh, a, a choice that you make, you know, you, you, if you want others like you to understand you, fine. And, you know, and if you're confident that they will understand that terminology, then there's nothing wrong with writing that way.
1: But if- I think that's the key bit, though, what you just said. <laughs> I mean, here we have somebody who is expert in the field complaining that, um, concerned about, I quote, his own sanity as a reader. I, 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 I do wonder if, well, let me put it this way. I'm very often in um, a piece of academic writing where I notice that when the going gets tough, when the thinking really needs to apply itself to the subject matter, the jargon ramps up and it would be my expectation that the jargon would be at that moment created because you very much may need to be create. I mean, this gets to the idea of creativity and scholarship. You might be at the point where you have to be creating new concepts and applying new labels.
0: Yeah. I mean, it. Okay there there are reasons there are reasons why jargon matters in the sense that sometimes it is a, a a a shortcut to referring to a complex concept i mean you know without going into kind of um sort of discipline specific jargon but the very terminology of um you know epistemology and ontology which causes you know endless confusion in students um you know and they think all this these are big words they're just really big words well yes they are big words but there's a reason why we do need to keep referring to them and the the trick is to explain what they mean and what they look like in different um in different disciplines Um, so what i'm trying to say is i think there are there are reasons there are situations in which the jargon has to remain because it is shorthand for something um the the, the the issue becomes whether your reader is not understanding them in the same way that you are understanding them in which case then you you know you can provide an example you can provide a context within, you know, to illustrate how you're using something. Um, but sometimes it is necessary. Um, you know, and I, I'm referring to those two words in particular because, again, in the book, I kind of get that terminology out of the way with at the very beginning, because I need the reader to be on board with that terminology, because otherwise they won't understand what I'm talking about in, in chapter four, where those words kind of come in quite prominently, and beca- and they're used, you know, in the literatures that I refer to, the, the words epistemology and ontology are, are, are used um and and you know that so so sometimes there's the i think to go back to your to your quote yes the the editor of that um of, of that journal was was complaining that they themselves didn't understand it but then i i i would question is is it are they did they write that email as with their editor hat on so thinking about their the the readership of their journal or did they write that email with their own scientific hat on in in other words you know they probably understood what that terminology meant um, but they were just thinking well the readers of the journal because you know they might all be scientists but they might be from different traditions in science and therefore they might not understand that terminology in quite the same way as the writer is understanding it so Again, I don't think there are blanket there are no blanket rules as to whether you do or you don't use the jargon. I think it it absolutely depends on what your purpose is in using it.
1: Wholeheartedly, uh, emphasize. I, I can wholeheartedly support that. And I have nothing against jargon. Not not, not at all. I, and in fact, you you notice it to bring up John Dewey. Again, you notice it with a writer like Dewey who has reached such a wide group of uh, thinkers and a wide public because of the way he writes. I mean, being accessible as he is creates for specialists a real problem because the texts then become something that need to be interpreted and need to be reformulated so that they make sense in the disciplines that they're being applied to, particularly education, of course, but that's not the only place. Uh, In other words, the words that he or his his formulations are just not as pin downable if you like as a expert researcher would like so that's that's a potential downfall so in other words you you reach broader audiences by you know there's always an exchange involved yeah, for, that, sure, absolutely. for sure for sure but the, but the, but i think what i'm also referring to is and i think this is what was also in the email we have one email here, so uh, it's not a lot to go on. But nonetheless, it's just an example. It's nice to have, a, you know, an example to hang things on. But I think what was going on is that I think what was upsetting um, the uh, advisor there, and it's certainly what upsets me sometimes when I read is I feel like the way that this writer has happened to put it right now is the only way that they can put it. And it's not that they don't even understand what they're saying, but it's the only way they have of putting it. And I find that, I, I find that an a, An automatic limitation on the way a person can um, fully understand what it is that they're doing. I mean, it's, you know, for me, part of your thinking to be able to rethink.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess if that writer, that the writer of that kind of jargony text, you know, was, was in one of your classes, Daniel, or, or possibly one of mine, then I guess one of the exercises that we would do with them would be to, you know, how do you transduct what you've just said for different audiences? In other words, not just translate, but how might you rethink the, 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 the medium? How might you rethink the mode of that, um, of, of the way you've communicated that? bearing in mind who is who you want to have understand what you've just said so you would you know as a, as a classroom exercise you would you would basically experiment with different ways of saying the same thing um yeah you know, and create create the the kind of uh, pedagogic context and conditions for 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 being flexible and for learning that there are different ways that you might say that, that there, may, there may be different points in the paper where the jargon is going to be more effective maybe not at the beginning maybe at the end um Or maybe you do introduce it at the beginning, but you qualify it and you provide all the necessary meta discourse at the beginning to say, you know, don't worry if this terminology isn't clear right now, it will become clearer as the paper moves on. You know, you you can kind of take control of your reader's expectations through the, the meta discourse as well that you're using in your writing. So I guess from a you know with my teacher hat on I would say well there's nothing inherently wrong with the the jargon it's just how how do you want to I mean I use this you know kind of rather negative uh, phrase with my students I say how do you want to manipulate the reader uh, and orient them towards the way that you're thinking about this um, you know and there are, there are obviously rhetorical strategies for doing that including meta discourse um, so yeah that's kind of how
1: <laughs> yeah and then and then you're getting the people. Thinking. Then you're getting the people thinking about what it is that they're doing, using using the academic writing. And uh, and I think, yeah, I couldn't imagine a better, <laughs> better point uh, to bring the uh, interview to a close. Thank you very much for that, uh, Julia. That is Julia Molinari and her book, What Makes Writing Academic? Rethinking Theory for Practice, is out now with Bloomsbury Academic. I'm Daniel Shea, and this is goodbye from me to Julia. Goodbye.
0: Um, Goodbye, Daniel. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed that. And uh, I wish you every success with your scholarly communication, which I think is a wonderful, wonderful example of, of academic scholarship.
1: Well, thank you again. And this is goodbye to all my listeners. Goodbye. And until next time here on Scholarly Communication.